Hello, everyone, and welcome to an episode of Humanitarian Horizons, Christina D'Archangelo Unveiled. And today I have a new guest on with me uh, by the name of the gentleman, Mark. He has joined us to talk to us about his background in a very important topic that we're going to discuss, which I'm not going to allude to yet, because I would love for Mark to introduce himself, let you guys know what he's about, so that we can get on to this very important topic that we want to discuss today. Welcome, Mark. Christina, thank you so much for, for having me on board. Um, I, I deeply appreciate it and, and deeply am passionate about the topic that we're going to talk about when it comes to healthcare. Uh, you know, my background is, is, is really threefold. I'm uh, a guy that uh, um, was in the military in the, in the, in the naval world and in intelligence. Uh, and I was exposed to a lot of things in that space. Um, I, from that, ended up into seminary and was a pastor, doing a lot of work with uh, small towns, uh, a lot of work in communities for people who needed help and care, created a lot of ministries where I, where I saw that there were uh, needs not being met. And uh, all of that kind of rolled up into my, my tenure in healthcare, which I've been in now for well over 30 years. And I think when I when I rolled all those together and I started looking at healthcare, I had the opportunity in healthcare to experience every level of care from hospital work, long-term hospital work, the post-acute work, which includes just about everything that you would you could possibly receive after a discharge from the hospital, which did include hospice. And I and I was very very passionate about hospice for a lot of reasons. I've helped a lot of people through that journey as a pastor um, in my various churches. And parishioners uh, been through it personally on my end, my wife's end. But the one thing that really kind of caught my eye as I constantly look for new places to serve was, you know, individuals that are incarcerated. And I think that uh, as I dug deeper into that, got to know some, uh, you know, some of the, my key relationships, knew uh, some people inside of the the system. Um, I started having meetings with their care coordinators, social workers, people of that nature, and started asking what was being done to serve the needs of those uh, incarcerated Americans that needed care at the end of their life. Because there are so many that end up in jails and prisons primarily who spent the rest of their life there. And uh, I was surprised to find out that uh, there wasn't a lot being done. I don't know I don't really know the reason for that. I don't know what it just overlooked or people were scared, you know, to step into that space. But, you know, as a former pastor, the first thing I thought of was these are people, Americans, yes, made bad decisions, but they still need to be cared for. They're, they're still patient. human beings. They're patients. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're, they're I know still patients. I know personally, I, I don't think I even disclosed this to you, you know, in our conversations we've had as colleagues and some of the things that we're talking about from a work related standpoint but uh, my brother was incarcerated and mm. he had committed um ag assault and this was like dating back to 2011 no 2012 no 2011 i apologize it was 20 no i'm very wrong sorry 2010 because <laughs> i came back from california came home in august of 2010 and then october of 2010 my brother had committed a crime and he had very, he had a, a lot of mental health issues, which was one of the reasons why he committed the crime. I'm not trying right. to make excuses, but that's really why he did what he did. But he had congestive heart failure mm -hmm. and he was very young. 
when he got congestive heart failure. So when he went into prison, one of my major concerns was the fact of that, that he had to take certain medicines that were prescribed yeah. by his physician for him to stay alive. At that point, he hadn't had a defibrillator it put into him. That happened right. later, when, thankfully, when he got out of prison and luckily never went back. But I experienced some of this with right. my, my brother and how the, the care was for him. Like he was not given the same medicines that he was prescribed by his physician because it wasn't available to them in prison. That's correct. So that's another issue, right? I mean, the fact that these people, yes, they're in there because they have committed a crime or they're believed to have committed a crime because there's right. some people right. that are there that didn't do it and they're stuck there. But they need to get their medicines. You can't take them off their meds because you can't get access to them. That doesn't even make sense. And then to the point that we're going to talk about later, which is which we're talking about now, which is hospice, end of life. Yeah. These these people are terminal. They're patients at the end of the day. They're Correct. humans, to your point. Yeah. We need to do better with helping these people through this transition to the other side. Whatever the other side looks like to them, we need to, to do that. And I think it's right. amazing that you did that, Mark, and that you were in there helping these people who – First off, don't feel like they're worthy most of the times, right? I'm sure you experienced that oh, yeah. with these people. And it's so it's so upsetting because they are worthy. They should be provided this type of care because they're patients at the end of the day. Yeah. It doesn't matter if they're incarcerated. Well, and I, when, the, when the day is done, they're human beings. Right. And it's the humane thing to do. We can, you know, we cannot like why they're there. That's a whole different topic. But they're still humans, and I and I think in my continue to work with this individual um, and ask him, you know, how do we how do we go about creating this? Because um, it's not really something at the time that I was doing it that they were, you know, that the government had really put a lot of, or invested a lot into. Now there, there's been changes that have been made, and you know, the care that they get in the clinic certainly um, isn't substandard. But, you know, a lot of these drugs that you end up taking to control pain and a variety of things, they're controlled substances. And, of course, that violates a, a lot of rules within, a, a, you know, a, a federal government institution. And so, you know, when you start thinking about just the, the process of hospice and, and trying to meet them where they're at, uh, try to allow them the dignity and the respect to continue to have some normality of life whatever that is through that journey, whether that's six months or longer. Uh, I mean, that's the hospice diagnosis that if, you know, if, if the disease they have continues on the current course that it's on, that we would not be surprised if, you know, they did not surpass a six month window. So for us, when we go into that space, you know, that's, that's a pretty critical, really sacred space I've said for, for a long time. Um, and we need to meet them with true empathy and compassion. Now, the hardest part of that was getting that understood within the system. And I fortunately, I ended up having a, a great guy that that understood it inside, which, you know, isn't always the case. And he had a clinic that we could bring our care in and at certain times with protection, provide care in that space. Um and, and it was certainly something unlike anything that I ever done 
even more so the credit goes to the nurses that were, were being escorted in and out of those situations because that's that's a higher calling of their of their task. It took special people who had that kind of empathy. But the good news is we were able to with with a collaborative spirit of, of really trying to do best uh, what's best for human beings. We were able to get in there and and provide that you know that life care that they needed desperately in those moments. Um, and I'm real proud of that. I, I think you know there's a lot a lot of people sitting in in uh, in our systems um, that we'll never see outside again. And so their life sentence is is behind those walls. Their life continues like all of us outside the walls. They still have health issues. You know, they still will come to it their end of their life, either by natural causes or others. They deserve that right to be cared for. And um, it was an experience unlike anything I've done in my career. And I felt, you know, I felt and all of us that were part of it felt unbelievably proud of that work. Um, and we were successful in giving peaceful transitions uh, with several, you know, there's also a spiritual side to this thing, you know, that, you know, you want to connect with. And so we would, you know, we would try to make sure we were utilizing the spiritual counseling that was available through the systems. Um, and then in some cases, even outside uh, counseling, but, you know, most of it was handled pretty well inside at that point. We were just filling a very, very needed gap. And, um, you know, there's, there's really not any words can be said despite life's decisions, you know, a, a quiet and dignified exodus from this world to the next, I think is probably the most humane thing we can do. And that's how I felt about uh, these prisoners. I completely agree with you a hundred percent. I, I, you know, as you know, we've been talking about this topic on multiple levels, um, specifically in our offline discussions and, this is something that, you know, I was lucky that when my brother passed away, he wasn't in prison. Um, he was out of prison at that point, as I alluded to before. Once, he, you know, he came out, he violated one time, he went in for a short stint and then came out and then stayed out, thank God. So when he, with his heart, he eventually had a defibrillator placed in there and he ended up passing what because he got COVID, which was, you know, he was one of the percentiles with the issues already pre-existing and yep. COVID just took over his body because it, he was only, his heart was only working at 18% capacity when he walked into the hospital with COVID, but he didn't have insurance either. So that's a whole another can another of animal. I'm not going to bring that up today. <laughs> um, we could talk about that another yeah. time, but um, some of the way that his treatment kind of fell through I was like, yeah. is it because he's, you know, Medicaid? Is that why, you know, because I'm a pharma person. So I know it's out there and I've worked on COVID since COVID started. So right. I, you know, I didn't work on the vaccines or the, or Paxlovid, but I was working on other things. So I understood COVID really well. So I was kind of jaded a little bit about that. And I wrote about it in a book that I'm going to be releasing soon about uh, another topic that was near and dear relational to my mom. So I was just so glad, though, that my brother passed away outside of prison and yeah. that thank God he didn't pass away while he was in prison, because I can't imagine what it would have been like 
for, I mean, the families, right? We don't yeah, even talk right. about that, right? I was Who just going to mention that. that. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. I think that the part that we don't stop and think about, you know, we're so, as a society, um, you know, we are definitely wanting individuals who have done horrible crimes uh, to serve time. And, you know, that's another topic, you know, on uh, for another day. I think for me as a military man, as a pastor, I think for me, you know, there's a there's an honorable thing we have responsibilities to do uh, to each other. And, mm -hmm. and granted, there's a lot of things happening in this world that's anything but honorable. But that's not an excuse for us who are who have a moral gauge and who, who understand the value of the humanity we've been given. And the part of it that, you know, another element of this whole thing that I wasn't prepared for that I ended up being brought into was the families, you know. We sometimes forget that whatever the reason is, whether rightfully or wrongfully incarcerated, that's another discussion for someone else to, to tackle. They're still family. They, they're they still part of some. There's someone's son or someone's mm -hmm. grandson or a granddaughter or, you know, uh, a husband. A husband. Wife. Why? Yeah, I mean, and there's still family out there that are concerned about them, visiting them, sitting there waiting to see them whenever they can or writing to them. You know, when you start to realize that when you when you meet these individuals to care for them, you're not just caring for them. You're also caring for their families. You're allowing their families to to see humanity being shared with their loved one, which let's be let's be honest, is probably not as much of that scene in the system. Because it's ruled, you know, it's it's governed by rules, and the rules are are the way this thing works. But how nice, in a sad situation, but how nice that here's somebody that's going to come in and love on, you know, their their loved one, and they know. I mean, they're a part of the process. You know, this, you know, uh, you know, death is not a, a singular event. It's a it's a, an event that touches many people's lives. And for them to see in those moments, despite the circumstances and locations and all that, but in those moments, there are still human beings out here who love on people for who they are and are not necessarily using the determination of whether they love them based upon what they did. And, you know, I think that's the purest form of love, um, you know, and, and so we love people where they are, uh, we give them what they need. And, and that's the true essence uh, of what hospice is about way back from the days when Dr. Tobin wrote his book about peaceful dying. I mean, this is what hospice is. And I think there's a huge and continues to be a huge opportunity inside of this space where we can make a huge difference for those individuals who are in those moments of life. You know, I think one of the big hurdles we'll have to continue to fight with and overcome is navigating with the institutional uh, governments. Um, you know, they're not, uh, they're not as accustomed to this approach because they're not designed that way. They're designed, you know, you've done a, you've done a, you know, you've done a crime, you'll serve the time and everything is structured rightfully. So I understand that from my military days, there's value in that structure and I get it. But I think we've got to be careful that we don't put structure over genuine care when care is needed. Right. And, and empathy, and, right? Yeah. We've got to yeah, have there empathy. has to be. 
you got to have some empathy. And, and to me, that's, that's where I, you know, for me, it was a, a life changing event, you know, and would love, you know, would love to be a part of seeing that, you know, uh, grow into something bigger. And I know many, many are trying to do it. So, you know, I certainly was not the only person that's ever reached into those systems or other hospice companies and, and others from religious background, churches and things of that nature, trying to find ways to expand, expand that. But there's no doubt there's a great need here. Well, you know what else I was thinking about was when you were talking about when we brought up the family aspect of it, you know, that's someone's family member, right? Yeah. Well, we've both had losses. You know, mm-hmm. we've both had people who've passed away um, or, or multiple people that have passed away in our lives. Yeah. And there's grief, right? Um, because you're left behind. They have gone on to the other side, whatever that you believe, whatever. Right. 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 They're not here anymore in this physical form of earth. I would think that these family members having the access to the hospice program like this and knowing that their loved ones are being treated fairly. um, Mm -hmm. I would think that their grief, although it's going to be terrible, their grief was a little bit better, at least for the fact that they know they're not worrying that the person, their loved one died alone in a cell. Correct. And they're found dead because how many articles do you read Mark? (laughs) I read every day, a lot of news. I pay a lot of attention to the, the incarcerated individuals and the prison systems and things of that nature because of all the work I do. How many times do you read articles where someone has found dead in their cell? Oh yeah. And then their family gets that unfortunate phone call saying that that person has died. So I would think that having this would help them at least grieve a little bit easier. Yeah. Because now they know their person didn't die alone. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And, and that is, and again, that's another beautiful aspect of hospice is that our goal is to surround them with, uh, with loved ones who, you know, are in the medical industry who care. And depending on their diagnosis and depending on where they are in their, uh, in their stage, it has a lot to do with how many hours um, are attributed to that person. So you know, as, as they get closer and closer to their peaceful exit, you know, you, they'll see more and more of uh, people being around them and checking on them, making sure they're comfortable and, and you know, communicating, communicating that information uh, where appropriate. You know, there's another big piece of hospice that I think is uh, so many times forgotten about, and you alluded to it with the family. You know, one of the hospice benefits is that there's counseling for the family for a year after that individual passes on. Mm-hmm. And it's not utilized like it should be, and, and I don't I don't really know why, because um, we we kind of want to just tuck ourselves away. Mm-hmm. I just recently lost my son, mm-hmm. and I went through the same mental struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to be left alone, mm-hmm. and uh, and yet when the day is done, that's not that's not good. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of hospice, you know, my son of course didn't need hospice, but. The loss is a loss right. and the reactions to it are the same. But there's a benefit that's extended to this family who's I, just lost a loved one. I would and, agree with you 100% because yeah. when my father passed away in 15, which you know, that's the whole reason why I started the nonprofit Affinity Patient Advocacy. Right. He was in hospice and he died very fast. He died less than two months from diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, he wanted to be in hospice. He wanted to die at home. Um, which was a home that he worked really hard to pay off, you know, and 
I messed up when he died because first off, I was so busy caring for him as his advocate and making sure I was supporting him and making sure everything was done the way he wanted it to be done. And that, you know, we respected him as a patient um, and as a human uh, because he was a tough guy, you know, and he wanted to still do things for himself. Sure. I should have, because when he died, it was like, okay, my job is done now, right? He's gone. I wasn't really, even though I knew it was coming, I wasn't prepared for that. Mm -hmm. And I never got therapy for him, Mm -hmm. which I should have done through hospice to your point. I didn't, I didn't start doing therapy until 2019 when I had some other things happen in my personal life and I had to open up about my father's death yeah, because I never did. And it changed me so Mm -hmm. much when he died, like to the point where I was not the same person anymore. And, you know, since he passed away, my uncle passed away. I helped him, you know, I advocated for him. I was with him during hospice. So then I was reliving my father dying again because Mm -hmm. they were very similar. It was three years thereafter. And then my brother passed away in 22 from COVID at 43. And then my mom just died last January. We're coming up on her one year anniversary. So all these deaths have been so different in the grief process for me. Um, And my brother and my mother weren't in hospice either. But because I know better now from what I do with my dad, I know that I can reach out to my therapist if need be, but now I have a toolbox, right? Right. So I know what to do. But before I did it and I was useless. And like you said, you kind of go into a shell and you're just like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm just doing what I need to do to get by. I threw myself into work because I'm good at that. I'm sure you did the same thing. I I know I talked to you after your your son had passed. It was a business meeting. So, you know, I think that although we're talking about hospice, in incarcerated individuals, I think it was important for us to talk a little bit about the grief side of things as it relates to these family members um, so that they realize that there's support out there for them so that they don't do something then because they're so upset, they're not thinking straight. And then they end up. Yes. Well, and and I think that, you know, we just sometimes don't see the, the really global picture of of the world of death and dying, which, you know, I've spent a lot of years in both as a pastor and then as a professional inside of hospice. And, you know, we want, we want to do everything that we can do. I think it's our human responsibility to do everything that we can do to allow that, um, that individual forget about any of the circumstances, just deal with the individual and what, what they deserve when it comes to the death process. And, you know, I've seen a lot of different scenarios play out in my years in hospice and, and, and the best death is, 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 is referred to uh, in Dr. Tobin's book is a death where there's peace and where there's family around and they're at peace. And, you know, I remember standing by the bedsides of many, many, many people as pastor um, as that last breath on this side of eternity and ushered into the next was taken. And I don't, I don't think you can't find, I, I can't find the words to describe that moment, but I can find the words to describe the looks on the family's faces 
and of the person that we were giving hospice to. I can describe that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you don't forget that. That is no. something that you carry the rest of your life. Those families will know to the very end that their loved one was loved on uh, by people, as I call them, the angels of hospice who do it for the right reason. All the years I was in hospice, I never found anybody doing it because it was a job. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, when I interviewed people, I would ask them, why do you want to do this? Mm-hmm. And the ones that did it and stayed in it for years, and I still have a lot of friends still in hospice, nurses and various people, they see it as a mission of God to do the right thing. And Lord knows we need more of that today. Yes, we do sure the we right do. thing. And, and so I will always um, tip my hat to individuals that are in this space. I've been through it. I've, I've helped my family, my wife's family, and many personal friends, parents as a pastor, uh, you know, move on in their services and been, been there in their last breaths. And, uh, you know, we're all, we're all human beings and we are all going to pass and we're all going to face this at some point. We don't need to face it alone. We shouldn't face it alone. And I don't care what's happened in life that may have changed the circumstances. The right thing as human beings is to be there and love on those individuals through the end. And that's what hospice does. Thank you, Mark, um, for sharing all this uh, today, because I I know it's not necessarily easy either, um, given the fact that you're bringing up all these people that you've helped over the years. It's here now, right now. I think of many of them as we talk. And then you, you just recently had a loss yourself. So now we're talking about loss, which is never easy really to discuss, but I commend you for being vulnerable and to come on and talk to me about this stuff, because it's really important that we share this information with people so that people understand that there should not be stigma attached to incarcerated individuals at the time of their death. I agree with you. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversations and the time to get to know each other. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation because it's, as you know, it's one that I'm very passionate about. I share in the passion with you, as you know. So with that said, we're going to end for today. Thank you again, Mark, for joining us. And thank you you (laughs) to all of our viewers and listeners for joining us on this humanitarian effort to share information as it relates to incarcerated individuals in hospice. Thank you.